Parkinson's disease is a chronic and progressive disease. 65,000 Canadians have this disease. As the disease progresses, quality of life decreases for both patients and caregivers. There have been many recent advances in terms of managing symptoms and improving quality of life. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, an editor for the research section of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with two authors of a new Canadian clinical practice guideline for Parkinson's disease. The guideline is published in the CMAJ. Dr. David Grimes and Dr. Tiago Mestra are joining me from Ottawa to discuss. Dr. Mestra, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Dr. Grimes, welcome. Good afternoon. Let's start by asking just what sort of clinicians and doctors you are. Dr. Grimes, could you tell us a bit about yourself? So I'm uh, a Parkinson's disease and movement disorder uh, neurologist who uh, has been seeing and treating individuals with Parkinson's disease now for 20 years. I'm also involved in uh, active clinical research program here at our institution. Dr. Mestre? Yeah, so I'm a, also a movement disorder neurologist. I've been practicing for about five years at the Hoda Hospital. Uh, and one of my mandates, and it's, it fits with, well with these guidelines, is that uh, I dedicate to advanced therapies in Parkinson's disease within the, our institution. Dr. Grimes, can you explain briefly how this guideline came together? Why do we need an updated guideline to the 2012 edition? Well, I mean, the original guidelines were developed after we had a, a meeting where we realized that individuals with Parkinson's we're getting seen in the subspecialty clinics less than half of the time, and there needed to be better information out there in a Canadian context. And so that generated the first Canadian guideline and in 2012. And now there's been a lot of uh, new information that's come out and new knowledge gained that we felt that it was uh, a good time to make sure that that, uh, that key information that Parkinson patients and allied health members get is, is updated. Dr. Grimes, can you give us a brief overview of what the method of the guideline was? So there certainly are other guidelines available that address different aspects of Parkinson's, some more comprehensive than, than others and some better evidence-based than others. And so our approach was to really first look at you know, what other guidelines are available in the literature that we could apply to a Canadian context and then using what's called the ADAPT process is adapt those guidelines to uh, a Canadian context. If there was no other guidelines that addressed points that we thought were important, we then uh, had our method center group review the literature on that topic and then develop our own uh, guideline for that particular uh, point that we wanted to make. So it really is a very evidence-based approach to the development of the guidelines. We wanted to make sure we had all the different uh, players involved. So we had not only neurologists, we had neurosurgeons, we had physiotherapists, social work, we had individuals with Parkinson's disease, we had uh, uh, experts uh, in terms of uh, looking at uh, mood and, and family doctors involved. So we really tried to cover a broad range of opinions in developing the guidelines. You divided up the recommendations in the guideline into five main sections, which are communication, diagnosis and disease progression, 
treatment, non-motor features, and palliative care. So let's go through these sections one at a time. First off, Dr. Grimes, what are the key recommendations regarding communication with people with Parkinson's disease? It's very important that families or caregivers are involved in the discussions. And so we feel that having them involved early on in the process, attending visits is a key and making sure the any recommendations are written down so that people can review them later on. And so everybody is on the, the same page as to what, what is supposed to be happening with their care. Dr. Mestro, for diagnosing the disease, what should physicians keep in mind? How exactly is Parkinson's disease best diagnosed? So Parkinson's disease is uh, is perhaps, and uh, as I usually say, it's an old-style medicine practice in a sense that it's fundamentally a clinical diagnosis. So based in the patient history, in what we assessed in the exam, and at the time we conclude our exam, our first step is to know does this patient has Parkinsonism or not, which is actually primarily defined by a feature called bradykinesia. So a patient does not need to have tremors to have Parkinsonism. And then once we establish that clinical syndrome, we try to see what's the likelihood of that patient having Parkinson's disease or does the patient has some atypical findings for Parkinson's disease. And then uh, we'll consider other neurodegenerative Parkinsonisms uh, in our differential. So an important message is that we really do not require imaging in a patient that we consider has typical Parkinson's disease. Another aspect that's important with the guidelines is that when is it the right time to refer to a specialist? And definitely if a patient for which the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease was made and is, has difficulty in managing the symptoms, that's should refer to a specialist. Of course, if there's a uh, the consideration for an atypical form of Parkinsonism, uh, but also when is the, uh, there's a suspected Parkinson's disease, uh, it should be seen by a specialist at a given time. So when exactly would you order brain imaging, and what's the preferred method of brain imaging for patients with Parkinson's disease? The, the preferred imaging modality would be a brain MRI, and usually it's considered when we think there's there's a reasonable doubt that this patient, specific patient, might not have Parkinson's disease. And so if you consider other atypical neurogenerative Parkinsonism, such as multiple system atrophy, progressive supranuclear palsy, among others, so if there's findings on the exam or in the history, um, then uh, we should consider an MRI. So let's turn a little bit to treatment because you mentioned in your guidelines that the response to treatment has a bit of a role in diagnosis as well. What are the different treatment options for management of Parkinson's disease? So currently there's, there's many pharmacological options for the management of Parkinson's disease. Uh, most of them are centered in, in the principle of attempting to supply with dopamine or with an agent that will replenish the brain uh, with dopamine. And that's the basic mechanism of action we, we resource to, to treat our patients. Broadly, we can divide the, our treatment strategies in, in two large groups. So early on in disease, 
either the novel treatment or or, or treatment after a patient has started uh, medications. Uh, and then the other large group of, of patients uh, that lead to a different treatment strategies are patients that start to develop what we call more complications that broadly can be divided in two groups. One is the situation where a patient experienced that the, the medication that is taken and it was quite uh, beneficial at the beginning does not long does not last as long as before. And so the patient feels that his Parkinson's symptoms are worse as the next uh, medication dose is due. Uh, and those are called motor fluctuations. And another situation is that actually the patient takes his medications, improves from his Parkinson's symptoms, but develops involuntary movements called dyskinesias. So at that phase of motor complications, there's a whole different set of strategies. Uh, most of them resource on the same type of medications. And then I would say I would just finalize by adding that there's a, 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 a last resource in terms of treatments, and these are called the advanced therapies uh, that broad, broadly can be divided in surgical approaches, but also in continuous administration of medications such as levodopa. And these are the last resource when these motor complications problems are more difficult to manage. So with the initial treatment with levodopa, which is a form of dopamine replacement, and it gets into the brain and you see a good clinical response, this is very reassuring for the clinician in terms of making the diagnosis of Parkinsonism. Is that correct? Yes, in general it is. And, and I would just just had to uh, that definitely a significant response to, to, to a dopaminergic treatment strengthens the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, but also as we follow up patients, the development of these motor complications further strengthens the, these diagnoses. Perhaps I could just, just add the fact that I think we need to be just careful of what we're measuring in terms of benefit. And, and the thing that we're really looking for with the medication in terms of benefit is an improvement in their slowness or bradykinesia. Too often we see that, you know, patients get started on levodopa and they have significant tremor and then that doesn't respond to levodopa. And then the physician says, well, this isn't Parkinson's disease. Another scenario is where somebody might have a lot of depression early on. And, and so it's really the mood that's limiting their function. And, and so you have to be careful, again, what you're measuring in terms of outcome or expectation from your therapy right from the get-go and make sure that the patient understands that that is really the symptom you're aiming your therapy for is the slowness and maybe not the other features of Parkinson's. And then if they don't respond, um, it may be a function of that you're, you're measuring the wrong thing. So it really is a focus on improving slowness of functioning in general. And before we leave medications, perhaps Dr. Grimes could answer this question for the physician who doesn't manage Parkinson's disease patients every day. Can you just remind us what the essential role of dopamine is in the brain? It really is. We think of it as a, as a modulator of movement. And so, you know, when you're lacking dopamine, your, your movement coordination and, and, and overall speed does slow down, but it does have very diffuse roles. And, and we think it may also play a role in mood and, and, and other aspects of how somebody is, is living. Um, but 
from a from a treatment standpoint, again, it's really measuring and, and improving speed as we try to get the dopamine levels back to normal levels in the brain. When we're talking about the treatment of Parkinson's, I think many physicians get overwhelmed when they see the number of different options that we would potentially have to treat individuals with Parkinson's. And I think for many physicians that if they really get more comfortable with using levodopa, there's nothing wrong with just using levodopa for individuals with Parkinson's. It's the gold standard. It, it works still the best. Um, and, and so I think that would be the one treatment option that pharmacologic option that, that physicians should get comfortable with. There are other things that uh, clinicians can use for patients with Parkinson's disease than medications. Could you tell us a bit about those, Dr. Grimes? So I think that's one of the keys in, in the new guidelines that we were trying to promote. And in, in, in the past, I think we sort of thought of you know, exercise is something that was kind of a nice thing to do for our patients and, and their general health. But it's become very clear with many, many randomized controlled trials that exercise clearly improves Parkinson patients functioning as well as overall feeling uh, well. And, and so that's, I think, a really key aspect that really needs to be promoted for all our Parkinson's patients, that, that exercise is definitely an important treatment uh, part of their care. Other things as well, I mean, I mean occupational therapy occupational therapy plays a, an important role. Um, and, and so these other modalities of treatment are, are very important for keeping people you know, healthy and happy. I have a patient who has a tube going into his duodenum and who had a dramatic improvement in his Parkinson's disease when we started to give his levodopa directly into his duodenum. This is a novel therapy which you touch on in the, in the guideline. I want you to comment on, on it generally, but could you also answer the non-neurologist question, which is, what are you doing by giving it to the duodenum? Is it just enhancing local delivery of the drug beyond the reach of gastric acid? Or is the duodenum implicated in the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease? So we believe that, I think at least two, I, there's two factors that we're trying to overcome with with this infusion therapy that I briefly mentioned before when we we're talking about pharmacological options for Parkinson's disease. And so one of, of the mechanisms we think is involved in the development and worsening of the motor complications is the pulsatile administration of uh, levodopa through the, as we use the oral medications. So uh, not only with this intervention, but with other interventions, it uh, seems that if we have a continuous administration of levodopa, this is an essential factor to reduce the motor fluctuations or the dyskinesias, but especially the motor fluctuations. The other aspect that could also be uh, overcome by the, by the intrajejunal administration of levodopa is to some extent overcome gastric factors such as, you know, gastric paresis, uh, and so ultimately could also improve the absorption of levodopa. But I would think, I would think perhaps more, more fundamental is the fact that through that type of, of infusion therapy, you're providing a continuous uh, supply of levodopa to the brain. 
Dr. Maestro, you have a particular expertise in deep brain uh, stimulation, and there's a lot of interest in the public mind about this. Could you comment on the current role of that therapy? So deep brain stimulation, uh, through a different mechanism, so it's through electric stimulation, attempts to, to deliver an anti-Parkinsonian effect also continuously. And so, to, as I usually say to my patients, is as if you were taking a pill permanently, at night and during the day. And so, uh, deep brain stimulation has, has, has been part of the management of Parkinson's disease now perhaps more than 30 years, and it's especially uh, useful in the patients that have developed these motor complications for which uh, the oral medications are no longer uh, sufficient to, again, not only treat the motor complications, but help patients function in their daily lives and in their quality of life. So it's really a, a standard therapy um, for, for more advanced patients with these motor complications problems. Another, another indication is not necessarily related with motor complications is when patients have a particular severe tremor uh, that in some situations can be actually not responsive to, to any of the Parkinson's medications. And so uh, it's also a role of TBS to treat these patients for tremor. So coming back to that molecule dopamine again for the moment, what is it exactly about deep brain stimulation that gets dopamine into the right place in the brain? So it might seem a little bit awkward what I was going to say, but really we don't totally know. We, we do know that the deep brain stimulation will intervene in the circuitry of the basal ganglia and to some extent will we'll normalize the function. And so uh, and we can accomplish, accomplish that to different targets, either, for example, the subthalamic nucleus or the globus pallidus. Uh, and... It, in principle, it leads to a normalization of the basal ganglia uh, circuitry to the point that then it improves the Parkinson's symptoms. Dr. Grimes, patients with Parkinson's disease often have non-motor symptoms. Can you give us some examples and tell us about how they are managed? So you know, one of the most uh, common non-motor symptom is depression. And when we were looking at our new guidelines, we were hoping, and I guess my hope initially was that we'd be able to come up with, a, you know, you have Parkinson's disease, here's the, you know, depression treatments that you should be on. And the more you re we reviewed the literature from an evidence-based standpoint, it became very clear that there isn't one best management therapy for depression in people with Parkinson's disease. And one of the things we try to highlight in the guidelines that it it really is more based on, you know, the age of the patient, the overall health of the patient, what other medical problems they might have. And so it becomes actually less important, um, the Parkinson aspect, that they have Parkinson's disease. It, and it's more that they have depression and you should be treating their depression. Yes, it can be harder to recognize the depression in individuals with Parkinson's disease, but I think more physicians should be comfortable with treating the depression in individuals with Parkinson's because it is so common. Anxiety is very common. Other examples would be troubles with constipation, bladder function. And again, we're trying to 
highlight the fact in the guidelines that these are all things that I think most, you know, family physicians should be comfortable with treating and, and should really go ahead and, and be aggressively treating these because more and more studies have shown that these are the things that really affect people's quality of life. And, and in general, we do not do a good enough job managing these types of symptoms. Again, things like bladder troubles, uh, uh, orthostatic blood pressure drops, again, all common things that, that many physicians would be seeing. And again, I think we could all do a better job of, of managing. The last category in your guideline is about palliative care. Some patients and even some doctors are under the impression that palliative care is, is reserved for uh, late in the management of disease. But that's not necessarily the case here, is it? So I think actually it was a it was a, an addition to the current guidelines to have this category on palliative care, and uh, as you mentioned many times, and myself, we think about palliative care, we think about situations as cancer and terminal cancer, uh, but the 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 application of palliative care principles to neurodegenerative conditions uh, like Parkinson's disease. It's, it's, it's more considering an holistic approach to care, uh, and trying to reduce the symptoms that reduce the, the quality of life and impair patient's function. And also one important thing in the guidelines is also the planning for the future, uh, having an honest and very open discussion of what are, what can be experienced by a patient with Parkinson's disease and their family that cares for this patient in the future. And so ideas such as advanced care planning um, are very important uh, discussions to have at the given time. And, and I think another aspect from the guidelines is that we should try to have these conversations the earliest possible. And, but it's still within the physician's, I guess, sensitivity or, or hard to, to, to know exactly when is the best time to do it. Sometimes the suffering at the end of Parkinson's disease can be severe and unsupportable. Do the guidelines address the issue of assistance, medical assistance in dying for patients with uh, terminal Parkinson's disease? This is you know, something that in our Canadian society has been discussed a lot over the last couple of years, and, and we felt that was one of the things we really wanted to make sure we included in the guidelines. And so we did include a statement that, that really said that we do support the concept of medical assistance in dying. And the difficulty still with the current uh, regulations is do people with Parkinson's meet the current criteria? And, and I think if this is something as a society that's going to be discussed and, and I suspect in my own mind will be changing over the coming years. But I think that for most Parkinson patients, although that we think is, is an option for them, I think the criteria as they're currently written, they're probably not going to be many patients who are candidates for it. Are there any other comments about knowledge gaps in Parkinson's disease? Uh, you know, with Parkinson's being a neurodegenerative disease, there's certainly lots of things that we need to understand about the basic process. We, we do have lots of treatments for Parkinson's, but we don't have is something that affects the underlying progression of Parkinson's. And, and so we definitely need that knowledge. You know, there's research going into understanding it. We're starting therapies that we, in from a research standpoint, we're hoping will have an effect on progression. So that's certainly a, a big gap. And But also in terms of better uh, tools to diagnose Parkinson's, better tools to measure progression, 
because if, if we have those, we can give a better prognosis for patients or better, more accurate prognosis, uh, more accurate diagnosis. And, and so there's, there's still many things that we need to learn in Parkinson's. Dr. Mestra, do you have any final comments? I'll just, in terms of the gaps in knowledge, I perhaps will just add, and, and, and I totally agree with Dr. Grimes as, as said, is that perhaps we need to, to, to learn how to integrate the complexity of care in Parkinson's disease. And so, because really we shifted from considering Parkinson's disease an exclusive motor neurological disorder to something more complex that has motor, known motor features, and, and that definitely increased the complexity of care. So what is the best way to deliver care for patients with Parkinson's disease? And thinking at the, you know, at the system level, at hospital level, health system level, that's, that's important as also our population is, 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 is aging. Colleagues, thank you for doing this for us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. David Grimes, Chief of the Division of Neurology and Director of the Parkinson Disease and Movement Disorder Clinic at the Ottawa Hospital, and Dr. Diego Mestra, Co-Director of the Deep Brain Stimulation Program at the Ottawa Hospital. To read the Canadian Clinical Practice Guideline for Parkinson's Disease, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, an editor at CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>